Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. And I'm Nick Watson on Twitter, underscore NJ Watson. And today, from uh, developing a show and uh, staffing a writer's room to the story breaking process and production of a series, we are talking all about showrunning the Fox animated series Duncanville and The Simpsons with a very special guest. Oh, joined by Mike Scully, a writer on The Simpsons, writer producer on Parks and Recreation, The Carmichael Show, Everybody Loves Raymond, and is currently co showrunning the new Fox animated series Duncanville. Welcome. Mike. Oh, hey guys, how you doing? We're doing uh, great. Good to uh, have you. Indeed. And let's get uh, right to it now. So first up, how'd you get your start in the industry? What was your first sort of TV gig? I came out here in like 1982 from Massachusetts, uh, just with a plan of getting into comedy. <laughs> I wasn't <laughs> exactly sure what it meant beyond that. And started doing, you know, open mic nights and writing spec scripts and all that stuff. And then uh, I wound up writing some jokes for Russian comedian Yakov Smirnov. (laughs) And uh, Yakov got a sitcom called What a Country. And he was uh, gracious enough to get me on staff at that show. Oddly enough... I was paper teamed, <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, which I didn't even know like what it was at the time. It was me and there was another writer named Frank Mueller, and they brought us in a room and said, we only have enough money for one writer, so we want to make you guys a team. We, we didn't hadn't heard the term paper team before. They said, why don't you go in that room, see if you like each other, and if you do, then you both have jobs. Wow. <laughs> and <laughs> we went crazy. into the room, and you know, it was like, I like you, do you like me? Okay, fine. And that was the first show I was staffed on. Like several years later, I found out it was actually illegal. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you might be the first guest it. on the Paper Team podcast we've had that's actually been paper teams. Yes. So there you yeah, go. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what were some of your like inspirations, especially in terms of TV shows and movies that made you want to be in this medium? I mean, TV show wise, you know, as a kid, I grew up watching like a lot of like, you know, the silly shows of the six, like, you know, Gilligan's Island and, uh, yeah, but there was always like shows like like F Troop or Green Acres where I felt like there's something else going on here besides what seems like just silly jokes. There was a smartness to the silliness that I responded to. And also you know, early Jim Brooks, uh, <laughs> ironically, mm-hmm. uh, a show called He and She. That starred Jack Cassidy and Richard Benjamin and Paul Apprentice. And I there were, I don't know what you call it in your brain where it, it's suddenly really, you're responding to something else besides what you normally laugh at. And you don't know what it is. But and, you know, in hindsight, I think there was a smartness to the writing. I think I was realizing I'm I think I'm laughing at like characters and understanding the differences between characters. So that those shows I kind of grew up with. And in the 70s when I was in high school, it was like Total like Jim Brooks, MTM, you know, Mary Tyler Moore or like Norman Lear, you know, All in the Family, uh, you know, those type of shows. I was really drawn to those to the point of where like that Saturday night CBS lineup of the early 70s, which was just like one great show after another, like from Mary Tyler Moore, you know, Bob Newhart, you know, All in the Family and Carol Burnett at 10 o'clock. I would like plan with my friends. I would say, tell me like where you're going to be like around 1130 <laughs> and I'll come meet you there. But from like eight to 11, I, I can't go out. <laughs> yeah. So you've worked on a number of shows of your career. What do you feel you've learned from each show that you worked on uh, that you were able to then bring to running your own shows? 
you learn something every show, like whether it's a good show or a show that doesn't work out, you know, the way, you know, anybody expected or hoped. I mean, you're always learning. If you're paying attention, you're learning because you're seeing, you know, decisions being made, you know, right and wrong. And you see how people, you know, handle you know, a writer's room and breaking a story. And the, some of the stuff I've learned is nobody has all the answers all the time. It's impossible. And the the willingness to admit you've gone down the wrong road <laughs> and trying to fix it and listening to your staff and also how to commit to something that doesn't seem to be working, but your willingness to fix it rather than panic and just rewrite it or throw the whole story out. That I learned a lot about like from uh, Phil Rosenthal and Everybody Loves Raymond. Phil was amazing at, you'd have a run through and you say, well, it didn't go that great or some of it seemed to work, some of it didn't. And Phil had just amazing instincts at knowing what was a writing problem, what was a performance problem, that sort of thing, or you know, like a staging problem, because he also thought like a director and a writer and an actor, because he, he used to be one. Yeah. <laughs> so, and uh, that I, I learned a lot about. He just didn't go back to the room and go, well, it, it, you know, act three didn't get any laughs, so we're just going to throw it out and come up with something new. So you, yeah, I've learned a lot of those different types of things from different writers. On Parks and Rec, Mike Schur was amazing at just staying calm and cool and no matter what was you know happening on the show, and he, he had a great focus and he could he had the ability to kind of step back from the show and like fix things and great at running a room a great editor of uh, material you know and at the simpsons i you know you kind of learn to use a whole different part of your brain uh, i had never done animation before the simpsons i didn't know anything about how it worked really learned a lot from people like david merkin and and al jean and george meyer and mike reese and all, all those you know people of how to write animation and think of jokes from a completely different angle than you might on a, say, like a multicam sitcom. Jumping really into uh, Duncanville, can you tell us a bit about how that show came about? What was the, the pitching process? Uh, do you have any advice on that? Yeah, Duncanville came about. I got a, a text from uh, Amy Poehler in June of 2016, <laughs> <laughs> just asking, like, hey, do you want to try and an an do an animated show together? And uh uh, you know, and she she had some experience in animation. She had well the movie Inside Out, and then she had done a series for Nickelodeon called The Mighty Bee. We had hit it off on Parks and Rec and stayed in touch, uh, just kicking around ideas. And so we got together, she and I, and uh, my wife Julie, and we sat down and just started talking about what would be fun. And we kind of very quickly latched on to the idea of a teenage kid being the center of the show because animation usually like the Sunday night. Fox shows, the kids tend to be younger. Or I know Family Guy has teenage kids. They don't use them as, you know, nearly as much as like Brian and Peter and Stewie. Uh, so we thought that might be fun. And we were thinking about uh, that 70s show was kind of in our heads for some reason. Uh, not that Duncanville is set in the 70s, but there's a teenage kid at the center and he's got friends, but he also has his family. So we were kind of looking at that balance. And then, you know, we kicked it around for about a year uh, sporadically. Pitched it to Fox in May of 2017, and now just three short years later, <laughs> we're premiering on Fox. And speaking of Fox, you have actually had an overall deal with them, right? Uh, what does that mean for a writer, and how has that helped you? The overall deal is something where you're kind of a 
They used to just be called development deals because they wanted you to focus solely on developing pilot ideas. And that was all you would do is just the, and then they evolved over the years to be called overall deals. They decided they wanted you on shows while you were developing your ideas. They also wanted you helping on shows they had on the air at the time. So it used to be like, I know writers that had like these development deals you know, like in the early 80s. And they said they would just literally like sit at home going, I'm thinking, I'm thinking. <laughs> it's background process. Yes, exactly. It. Yeah. Uh, but now, usually if you're not developing an idea, you are assigned to one of the studio shows, which can be a lot of fun too. You wind up working with different writers, meeting more people. That's how I wound up at the Carmichael show. 20th had several shows happening. And, you know, I... I was in a fortunate position where I might be able to choose, you know, which show I could go on. And I saw the presentation of the Carmichael show and I thought it was terrific. And I felt like they were onto something a little different and that Gerard Carmichael had something to say as a comic and a performer and a writer. So I actually like excitedly like mm -hmm. said, this is the show I want to be on. So that's part of being on a development deal, but, uh, but you're also always thinking, you know, about series ideas and pitching to the studio and hopefully you find something that they get excited excited about and take it out to the networks. Now let's jump into uh, the staffing process and especially how you approach staffing your room. Can you walk us through how you yourself approached staffing your different rooms on all your shows and uh, especially what you look for in each level? When we're staffing a show, my wife and I, we've done several series together, <laughs> all that have been quickly canceled. Uh, but, you know, you're always staffing with the best of hopes. Uh, uh, in the past, we've kind of gravitated toward people we've worked with before if they were available because we wanted that like comfort level and kind of a shorthand in the room. Because, you know, when you're launching a show, there's just so much going on and things that aren't start happening that you didn't expect to happen <laughs> or stuff that you thought was, you know oh, this is definitely going to work. And then you do the first one, like it ain't, it's not happening. <laughs> this time around on uh, Duncanville, we kind of deliberately went the opposite way. And we hired a group of young writers of various levels of experience. They had all done kind of like one or two shows. A couple of them had never done it before at all. And then we hired one guy, John Viner, who we had worked with in the past. And John's like a veteran of Family Guy and other shows. And now it was kind of fun because we're doing a show. First of all, the center of the show is a teenage kid. Uh, so we will figure we'd get some people who were closer <laughs> in age, you know, to, to that, uh, which we thought would be helpful. And we just kind of wanted to shake up our own routine and, and try something different and have writers who think a little differently about comedy than we do. And maybe could let me know when I'm being, you know, lame or, you know, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's so it was a different process and it really worked out great. Uh, we, we wound up breaking all the stories in the room and room writing all the scripts. Mm. We did not send people out on drafts like we would normally do. Uh, that allowed us to kind of keep control of the tone of the show Instead of just sending people out blindly on scripts, I think a lot of times in the first year of a show, you're just in that rush to to have a, something on the board to say, you know, we got five people out writing drafts right now, and it's all really exciting <laughs> until you get the drafts in. 
and you realize they've written five different versions of your show, like, cause you haven't established what your show really is yet. You don't really know your tone or your characters and you're kind of bluffing your way through when you're breaking those first few stories. And then you expect writers unfairly expect writers to nail it for you. Mm-hmm. So this time around, we did everything in the room. It enabled us to write the stories faster. Once a story was kind of going off the rails, which inevitably happens, you could stop and fix it right there instead of a story that that veers off at the end of Act One and then the writer stuck writing two more acts that don't make sense. You you fix it in real time while you're working on it. So we're big fans of that process. Now we we are starting to. If the show gets a second season, we will send out people on some drafts, but hopefully with more knowledge of what the show is now that we get it a little more. So when you're putting that room together, are you actively thinking about balancing the chemistry or the different skill sets in there? Like you want someone who's really good with dialogue or someone who's really good with character. How do you kind of like craft the right balance of the room? Yeah, that's always tough because you're, you know, particularly you're hiring on Duncanville. We were hiring a lot of people we didn't know and you're reading a sample and meeting them for maybe 20 minutes or you know half an hour at the most and then the rest is a crapshoot you know, like you don't really know until you're in the room together working what the strengths are going to be but yeah we we are hoping for some people who might be more a little more like solid on story and character you know we knew we were getting funny with everybody we had read their material but when you're reading scripts you don't know how long it took them to write those scripts mm-hmm. <laughs> it could have been 8 years to write <laughs> and now you have to do like crank it out on a weekly basis and you also like personality wise you're kind of sizing them up very quickly in that meeting cuz some people are super talented, but might not be the easiest to work with. (laughs) Mm. And you're trying to make sure that your room is going to get along. And uh, our room, it went great. Everyone was very supportive, (laughs) sometimes almost too supportive of each other, like, Mm. Because they were just laughing at everybody's pitches. After a while, I was like, oh, come on. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, you, sometimes you're gauging which joke you might pick to put in the script by the room laughs. But if everything's getting a laugh. <laughs> it's hard to gauge. It's like, come on, get a little tougher on each other. <laughs> uh, well, on that note, what do you look for in your lower level writer specifically? And especially in terms of the scripts, do you have a specific kind of sample that you enjoy reading? Uh, what do you feel makes uh, someone's script really Stand up in the pile. Yeah, that's a tough one because the, the trend, you know, now the last whatever six, seven, eight years has been pilots. Everybody's writing pilots. <laughs> I am not a fan of reading pilots. First of all, you're reading a lot of character descriptions and backstory, and yeah, okay, she's twenty, you know, six. She's beautiful and she doesn't know it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't met that person yet, but okay. But just in a pilot, there's there's just a lot of there's a lot of exposition and people's backstories and you have to understand all that. And that's not what we're hiring writers for. We, you know, we're hiring writers and, and I know other showrunners have said this thing. We're hiring you to mimic the pilot that we've written and then also to see what you can bring to it to make it better as a series. So, you know, that being said, you know, there's a lot of pilots out there to read. So my wife is is more patient than I am. She'll read a whole script. <laughs> <laughs> to be very honest, I frequently will read five pages. And if I'm not into it, I move on to the next script. If I'm on the fence, I'll read 10. If I like the script, I will read 20 and then bring the writer in. 
Uh, I don't need to read the whole script because I don't care how the story turns out, <laughs> you know. The other thing with pilots, too, is th there's no, like, shorthand to the character. So you have to, like, really pay attention. And I know a lot of times pilots are based on people's families. <laughs> it was like, yeah, yeah I, I, maybe you really nailed your uncle's voice. I don't know. You know I don't know your <laughs> uncle. You know? So, you know, so if I, you know, I'd rather read a spec script of, a, of an existing show because I can tell right away, did you mimic the tone of the show? Does it feel like an episode of that show? Does that sound like that character? So I try to tell writers now, you know, I'd rather read a spec but I think the best thing to have is to have a pilot, but also have a spec instead of trying to do two pilots. It's hard to write a good pilot, no matter how many years you've been writing. And I think initially this all started because I think agents thought this could be a goldmine of young writers writing pilots. They'll be cheap to do, you know, and we'll all get rich. <laughs> you know, we'll all package the shows. Uh, and it, it hasn't really materialized. But I, I would advise writers have a pilot, but have a strong spec because there are showrunners out there who would rather read a spec. And do you have a, a specific list of uh, shows that you want to read in terms of specs? How do you gauge sort of what you want to accept as a spec? Now, I'm, you know, pretty wide open because I've worked in multicam and single and animation. I'm very wide open to what I read. If I don't happen to know the show, because there's so many shows now, if I don't know it, I can go, you know, watch a couple episodes of the show uh, uh, if I want to. But no, I'll I'll read pretty much anything. And you know, the shows that people really like and, and write specs for, there's certain ones that people just gravitate to because the, the characters are stronger and they're a little more fun to write. I mean, there was that you know time years and years ago where. Yeah, you know, the town was like flooded with Seinfeld specs, <laughs> and, and you know that that would sometimes happen too. But that's just my personal preference. But the the writers we hired on the show, we hired mostly off of pilots, I, as far as I remember. And different things jumped out about them. I don't look at them as could this be a series. I just, I'm just looking at the writing, mm -hmm. and it's like, is this you know a funny scene? Is is there good back and forth characters? I'm looking at you know jokes, and you know if there's something about it that that makes me laugh a little. Uh, but I don't look at these pilots now. I used to read them like, how could this be a series? And now I've changed the way I read pilots to just, is this funny writing? And do you have any advice on handling the showrunner meeting once they actually get in the room with you? You know, what do you find stands out about people when you're sitting down? <laughs> uh, yes. <laughs> uh, based on things that have happened over the years, I went, one, don't come in and tell me how you could have done the pilot better because <laughs> uh, that's happened. You find things, you know, usually before you get to come in for the meeting, you get a chance to see the pilot. They send you a link, you get to watch it, find things in it that you connect with. Um, no writer, you know, hates hearing compliments about something that they worked on for a year or two, <laughs> you know, try not to look like a kiss ass, <laughs> but <laughs> at the same time, if you could find like two or three things that you connect with, whether it's jokes that you liked or character dynamics that you like, or things where you just had like a real personal connection. When I was hired for Parks and Rec, I had uh, worked with Greg Daniels on The Simpsons, but I had never met Mike Schur before. And Greg wanted us to meet and talk about it. And Mike was going to be kind of the primary showrunner. And the, my father was actually, when I was growing up, 
was the chairman of the Democrats in our small town. So there was a lot of politics, small town politics, which you know, played out on kind of a big canvas in this little town. So I was familiar you know, with that. And so I talked about that with Mike. And you know, I thought that was something I could bring to the show that maybe another writer you know, wouldn't be able to. Stuff like that. From the most recent set of meetings we had, I can also say, you know, you've got 20 minutes be prepared. Don't just go in and like sit back on the couch and expect us to carry the the conversation. Uh, you're in there. You know, we want to hear what your voice is going to be in the room. One person came in for a meeting and just started asking questions. It was like a joke thing at first where the writer was asking, I'm trying not to identify he or she, <laughs> uh, started asking how we were doing, what have we been up to? And, and like the first time it was funny, but then the bit kept up and like, oh, all right, so we're going to learn nothing about you in this meeting because <laughs> you're committing to this bit. So obviously they didn't wind up on the show. You know, These sound like silly things. Lean forward in the meeting. You know, don't sit back, relax, like over a friend's house. You're in there to score. Like, think of yourself like it's like you're a guest on a talk show <laughs> promoting a movie, or whatever. You got to like, you know, talk about what a great experience was. You know how funny the movie is. And, you know, if you have a clip, because you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is. You know, you don't know when you walk in how long you're going to be in there. You know, some meetings will only last 10, 15 minutes. If you're really clicking with somebody, the time is going by, and you, sometimes you realize, wow, we talked to that person for an hour. And the, the poor next writer has been sitting outside. <laughs> and also don't badmouth like shows you've worked on before, people you've worked with before. It's tempting sometimes to, you know, do it because you think you might get a laugh or you just want to tell the story. But it also makes the showrunner you're talking to think, well, what are they going to say about me <laughs> you know, when they go home at night? So try to be positive, upbeat. Take what you learn from your other experiences and focus on the positives. But in terms of you, the show, you talk about the show you're there to talk about. Be ready to answer questions about your family. Like with Duncanville, we were asking everybody specifically, what kind of a teenager were you? Because we really wanted to know, like, think about the show that you're coming in to interview for. And like I said, how do you personally connect? Is there a funny story? You know, like uh, one team came in and one of the writers told this hilarious story about he was going to surprise this girl with a Christmas presents that he had in the trunk of his car. And he was really going to like open his heart up to her. And it was like Christmas Eve and this whole thing. And then they were on a date and then she broke up with him and he's got all these presents in the back of the car. <laughs> and immediately we could kind of picture, Oh, I could see that as an episode of a te mm. you know, or, you know, a teenage kid in that situation. So, you know, they, they came in and they were ready, you know, and they got the job. <laughs> uh, so those are all things that that help and what things showrunners are looking for. And a lot of writers too are not great conversationally, unfortunately, you know. So you got to come in there and, and score. And every meeting won't be a great meeting, but just try to learn something from every meeting. Be hard on yourself when you leave. Like go over like in your head, I wish I had said this or I should have told this story, that sort of thing. Sometimes there's you know, stuff going on that you don't know about, too, when you walk in for the meeting. The showrunner might have just got off like a call with the network about something they hate in the pilot. They want to reshoot scenes. Whatever. You never know like what you're walking into. But, yeah, be upbeat, be positive. Don't look at your phone. Uh, 
<laughs> and you know, show that you're focused and that you really watch the pilot. Watch the pilot a few times, you know, before you go in there. So I actually had somebody come in the last time around. They said, oh, that they couldn't make the link work to watch the pilot, but they didn't contact anybody and they didn't get through the whole script. And they wow. like, yeah. well, gee, I can't wait to hire you yeah. <laughs> with that kind of enthusiasm. You know, so, you know, really think about how you're, you want to present yourself. Because like you said, it, the meeting can go by very quickly. Let's get into the practicalities of running that writer's room and especially looking at the first few days in the room as a showrunner. How do you get that ball rolling and sort of set that creative culture, maybe through rules, guidelines, or best practices? How do you approach that? Well, the first thing I, you know, I'm telling all young writers now, and particularly when it's your first job, the biggest problem in a writer's room now is the phone. It's number one. You talk to showrunners. They may not say anything to their staffs about it, but they're noticing it. And when you're working on a show and you're stuck on something and you glance around the room and you see people are like, whether it's under the table or just out in the open, it's like, hey, you're being paid a lot of money to be here. And it's not an exaggeration to say there are thousands of people <laughs> who would like to be where you are right now. And they're all a phone call away. It doesn't matter what you see the other writers doing in the room, stay off your phone. Your showrunner is registering how focused you are. Are you trying to help whatever you know thing we're trying to fix? So that's number one. If you want to check your messages when you go to the bathroom or whatever it is, you know, you know, people, and I hear a lot of people go, but emergency phone calls. I, you know, I, I've been in the room 30 years. I've seen one emergency phone call. <laughs> it sounds like a small thing, but it's become a real, real issue for showrunners. And it's, it's, it's very aggravating. So if you see the showrunner on the phone, that isn't like a license to the room of, well, you can all be on your phones too. If you're running the show, you're constantly getting texts and emails from either on the production side or from the network or studio. There's stuff that has to be answered right away. Be focused on the task at hand, whether it's breaking a story or you're rewriting a script, that sort of thing. Also, you want to kind of establish your voice in the room early uh, in the process. When I got hired at The Simpsons, I made a huge mistake. I got inside my own head. I had been on staffs of <laughs> some terrible shows. <laughs> when I got on staff at The Simpsons, I got in my own head and convinced myself I don't deserve to be here. And I had made the mistake of reading a story in Vanity Fair about two weeks before I started in the room. And the story was about the Simpsons writer's room. And it was like the dream team of TV comedy and about Conan and Gene and Reese and, 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 and George, Ma you were, and you're seeing all these names. And then I go in there and, and there they are. And I just, I clammed up and like day after day, I wasn't talking in the room. And you get to a point where you realize I haven't said anything for like five days. Now when I talk, I better say something great because <laughs> everyone's head is going to turn. <laughs> you know, who's that? So if you can kind of establish your voice in the room, you know, either in small talk, you know, things that, you know, like the room or when you're ordering lunch, whatever, just get comfortable hearing your voice in the room. 
you know, not that you have to be pitching constantly because that can be annoying also. You know, pick your spots, think out your pitches, but don't go days and days because you will drive yourself insane. When I was first at The Simpsons, I was coming home at night and I you know, I was just like a wreck. <laughs> and I, I was telling my wife, we can't buy a house. We can't, like, I'm going to be fired any day. Uh, and, you know, you know, thank God David Merkin gave me like another chance and picked up my option for another mm-hmm. season. It, like I say, just just get comfortable talking. If you know you tend to be a soft-spoken person, maybe try to sit a little closer to the showrunner so they'll hear your pitches. Because that, I, for some reason, the quieter people tend to sit the furthest distance away, and you literally can't hear them. And, and then you pitch it, and you don't know, oh, did they not hear me? Or is it a bad joke? Do I pitch it again? That sort of thing. Sometimes somebody in the room might take on kind of a parental role with you if they hear you saying funny stuff and they'll repitch your things for you, but you can't always count on that. And do you have a particular sort of show running style or things that you have adopted from past rooms that you liked how they worked? I don't know if I have a, a style. My wife and I you know, work together on it. We deliberately kind of plant ourselves in the middle of the table as opposed to the far end. I've done that too. And then I realized, boy, you're really far from the people at the other end, which can make them feel a little more disconnected. So we'll try to sit in the middle so we're hearing everybody. And we really do try to include everybody in the conversation, which tends to make people more comfortable pitching and to respond to pitches. Like, Because sometimes people will pitch something that is funny, but it's not exactly what you're looking for in this moment. But you want to let them know they're thinking down the right track. Like that, that's funny. And here's why we're not using it in this particular spot. Because sometimes it's too easy, particularly with young writers, you know, because I used to be one. <laughs> and it's very easy to get discouraged or to think you're just like over your head and you're not scoring. So we do try to include everybody, make them feel like part of the process. And I think that's just, you get better work out of everyone when you do that. And you try to have like fun little digressions in the room and learn more about people personally to learn about their personal life or their family or where they grew up. And because that can lead to conversations where people kind of relax a little or tell a funny story about their family. Anytime you're getting a laugh in the room, it's such a good feeling, you know? And oh, I guess if you're doing a medical drama, maybe not. I don't know. <laughs> um, so yeah, we just try to keep it very comfortable and fun for everybody. Now you've worked on pretty much everything from multicam to single cam and of course animation. Do you feel there are differences in terms of the writer's room for each of these formats? Yeah, I mean, they are. I've seen some very good you know, comedy writers where maybe animation wasn't their thing. But you can tell, you know, these are talented people. Like I've said, like animation, I had to kind of learn to use a different part of my brain for. At the same time, you are breaking stories. You know, you want character stuff. You want emotion. Joke-wise, they tend to be a little different in animation. You, you know, want like a, a super wide range of joke styles, whether they be, you know, visual kind of physical set piece type jokes fantasy sequences and you know that kind of stuff multicam there's a rhythm to multicam that's different than animation that's different than single cam you know people want to believe they're all the same but they're just not there is a multicam and i don't say this in a you know a derogatory way at all because i love multicam but there is a little more of a setup punchline thing because you're playing to a live audience scenes tend to end on a laugh because it's weird if they don't, <laughs> you know, unless you're going for a specific emotional or dramatic 
thing. A single cam has a different rhythm to the dialogue. It's not as set up and jokey, but you know, that being said, if you look like a show like Modern Family, there's great jokes. I, I, I always thought the brilliance of like when that show first came on the air, it was very hard to sell multicam comedies at that time. And it was hard to sell family comedies. And then Modern Family came on and I watched it and I said, oh, this is a multicam brilliantly disguised as a single cam <laughs> show. And it, it allowed them to do their emotional moments too at the same time. But you could you watch the show as a writer and recognize, oh, these are great jokes, you know, really like well-performed and, and written. But they're all a little bit different. And I deliberately kind of put myself like out there, like got out of my comfort zone. It would have been easy just to keep staying at The Simpsons and just do that. And I would have been, you know, very happy and, and I love doing it, but I think it's actually extended my career to go out and do other types of shows. Uh, you know, I had already done multicam previously uh, before The Simpsons, but say, I had never done single. And so I really enjoyed that at, you know, at parks. I learned a lot and now I'm just comfortable you know, in all the genres. And I've also done like just flat out joke writing and sketch and like Golden Globe joke writing. I enjoy that too. So, you know, soak up as many different types of opportunities if you can. My wife and I had done a show for Fox called The Pits with uh, Dylan Baker and Lizzie Kaplan. We did a solid seven episodes. I believe four of them aired. <laughs> and I was going to go back to The Simpsons when it was done. And that's when Phil Rosenthal called me about Raymond. And he said, well, I really want to know, like, do you really want to do it? And I said, yeah, I was already a huge fan of the show. And he said, well, because I pitched your name to the network and they passed. So I'm going to have to fight for you. So I want to know how badly you want it. Because <laughs> <laughs> they said, well, he's a cartoon guy. And I didn't realize that was when I learned, oh, writers can be typecast, <laughs> which made me want it even more. Like, oh, I can't, even if I wanted to stay at Simpsons, I felt career-wise, I've got to get out there and force myself to do other things. And fortunately, it was a show that I already was a fan of. So that's just advice I try to tell all writers to grab all the different experiences and work with as many different people as you can. Have you found much difference in running a show that you created yourself versus one where you're show running and there's a different creator or you're perhaps taking over like at The Simpsons? Taking over The Simpsons was terrifying. You know, First of all, at that point, the show, it was season nine, and the show was closing in on 200 episodes. So, mm. you know, not usually where most shows kind of hit their groove. <laughs> <laughs> and the show was just such an iconic franchise. Like, you don't want to be the person that sinks the ship. Those were also kind of early days of you know, internet scrutiny of shows <laughs> and that stuff. So, and, and people delighted in hating things. So there was that aspect to it also. But a lot of it was just, you don't want to ruin the show. You, you're protective of what other people worked so hard to create. When you're doing your own show, like The Simpsons was already at that point a well-oiled machine. When you're doing your own show, you're just constantly trying to figure out what your show is. And particularly in the first season, I was going to say season or two, but I've never gotten to the second <laughs> season. Every episode, you just like you're constantly hearing from the network and the studio, and you, you get a lot of voices in your ears about what people think is working and isn't working. And you're trying to figure out 
am I right? Are they right? Is, is everyone right? Are we all wrong? <laughs> I don't know. And you're only going to get so many chances. So there is a lot of pressure. You take the work home with you. I tend to have a lot of you know bad dreams of like <laughs> phone calls. And uh, you know, when I was running The Simpsons, I used to have, a, I never had like recurring nightmares before, but I had, when I was running The Simpsons, I had this recurring nightmare of it was Sunday night at eight o'clock and my phone would ring and it was Jim Brooks saying, Mike, the show's not on. I was like, what do you mean the show's not on? Because turn on your TV and I turn on and there's nothing there. And it's suddenly like, did I not finish this episode? What happened? <laughs> and you know, with when you're doing your own show, you just, you know, you're just rethinking your decisions all the time. And is there a way to make it better? And you know, in live action, you know, every show is like every five days, you're kind of doing a new one. So you want to score. You want to come up with that one idea that turn. If the show's not working, what can turn it around? You know, sometimes people are steering you the wrong way, not deliberately, but it's what they think the show is. So you're like, well, I want to keep them happy. The problem is when you're running your own show, if it fails, in the end, if you followed everybody's notes, the game, and now the the amount of people you're getting notes from just gets bigger and bigger. It's suddenly there's a pod involved, and there's somebody's manager and the studio and the network, and your you, the own notes you, you you give yourself, and you can really kind of drive yourself crazy and turn your show into a giant mess. And at the end, if it gets canceled, no one is going to come up to you and say, "Wow, did we steer you the wrong way?" <laughs> you know, at least that that's been my experience. Mm-hmm. So listen to what people are saying. If you're hearing the same thing from many different people, maybe there's something to it. But a lot of times people are just kind of going off the top of their head. And sometimes they feel like they just have to say something. Or And if you take it too literally, you can really mess up your thing. I'd rather have a show canceled and just be angry at myself. It's just easier that way to know, all right, I made all those decisions. You know, that's me <laughs> and move on to something else. The idea of why did I listen to, you know, you know, blank over this or why did I try to please everybody? It usually doesn't lead to success. So, but always listen to what they're saying. If you say no to every note, they may just stop giving you notes and I've seen people do this. I was on a show once <laughs> many, many years ago. And we, we were only doing like six episodes, but it felt like 800. Uh, <laughs> and the network just didn't show up for a network run through. Like nobody came. And the showrunner said, I think they know. We know what we're doing. And, you know, I was young and I was like, well, yeah, maybe, but <laughs> there might be another reason. And, you know, the show was canceled just a few weeks later. So anytime like the network stops you know, giving you input or like that give and take creative conversation, it's usually not a good sign unless you're in like season five and things are going excellent with the show and they're moving on to shows that have bigger problems. But if it's episode four and they're just not talking to you anymore, then uh, <laughs> don't don't buy the house. <laughs> now, moving on to how you approach uh, breaking story in your shows, uh, how do you balance sort of the blue sky process of planning ongoing story and character arcs on a larger scale to uh, drawing from the show's ongoing engine for sort of standalone episodes? Most of my career has been like standalone episodes, and particularly in animation, yeah, you know, the show tends to reset 
every week, you know, at the end, even if the show ends with groundskeeper Willie being deported (laughs) and then next week he's back again. (laughs) Parks and Rec was my first experience with story arcs. And I learned a lot from Mike Schur about that and planning out a season. And man, it's hard. (laughs) That's that's why I went running back to animation. It's really tough because you really have to think ahead and you have to have the ability and willingness to shift like kind of on the fly and say, this arc is not working and we're going to go this way with it now. Or you bring the staff in, like what would be a way to either get out of this arc or shift where we thought it was going to go? That's what I learned a lot about on that. And I, he, he had a great ability to do that on the fly because uh, the show was always kind of on the bubble with the network and, you know, so there was a lot of like writing of potential finales mm. <laughs> and stuff like that. But it is a different you know, dynamic writing those arcs. I don't know that I was great at it, but I did learn a lot uh, from Mike about how it works. But I haven't really done it myself yet. So we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> so in terms of world building, particularly on your most recent show, how did you codify what the world of Duncanville feels like and communicate that to your staff? Well, first of all, it's a show about a family. So that's a pretty easy thing for people to get. We wanted the tone, you know, somewhere in the vein of, you know, Simpsons, because that's what we know. But we wanted to, you know, build the show from the family out, you know, not to try to have a giant world in the pilot and to focus on Duncan's family. We actually added a character uh, of his 12-year-old sister who wasn't in the original presentation or pilot of the show. We That's the one thing nice about animation is it takes so long to do it, you get the chance of having fresh eyes on something. And we felt what was missing was kind of a tormentor for Duncan at home because his five-year-old sister adores him and wants to marry him and thinks he's the handsomest brother in the world. And so we thought, that well, that's a fun dynamic that you don't see a lot on TV, but we felt, well, he still needs that tormentor. The other thing we learned a lot about and change, the idea of Duncan was that, you know, kids that age, like boys in particular, can be very lethargic and speak in like, you know, monosyllabic. (laughs) And then when you go to convey that, like, it's hard. And like the second episode we wrote was all about Duncan not caring about something that his mom is very passionate about. And so we had a lot of jokes about him not caring or falling asleep while she's talking to him. And it all sounded very funny to us in the room. And then we saw it executed and it was boring. And you lost interest, and it was really was one of those, well, if he doesn't care, why am I supposed to be interested? So we kind of came up with something for him that we called passionate indifference, <laughs> <So> that, <laughs> that if he's not going to care about something, he's got to be very passionate about why he doesn't care and have his own set of you know reasons. And we, we kind of revamped that episode and the character a little bit to make him more fun in that way. So it's just stuff you learn while you're doing it. And breaking stories we wanted to come up with, you're always looking for family conflict and people drawing on their own childhoods and lives and family, you know, because you find great stories there. That's Simpsons has done tons of episodes that were based on the writer's real lives. And a lot of times they wind up being some of the more satisfying ones because people somehow connect or, or if they sense that it's real on some level. And Raymond was great at that too. Like I just recently saw they repeated the one where Ray taped over their wedding video with the Super Bowl. <laughs> and that one of the writers 
had done that. He wasn't the Super Bowl, but he had taped something over their wedding video. <laughs> so they, uh, th- those are always fun for people, I think. Well, to that point, obviously, there's been so many family sitcoms. How do you approach making that format and those archetypes feel original? Yeah, that's a great question because it's it's easy to fall into certain kind of cliche traps and you want it to feel current and maybe a little different than what you saw. In Duncanville, we try to, um, the mom, Annie, uh, Amy Poehler plays the mom and Duncan. So, and we wanted her to be very active. You know, she has a job, she's out in the world. We didn't want her to just be you know, the buzzkill telling other characters to not do the thing you know the audience wants to see them do. And so she had, we wanted her to be very active. And the dad is the more emotional parent in terms of he's kind of the, you know, on Facebook all the time and bragging about his family and texting his kids that he loves them and, you know, that kind of stuff. So we were looking for more current dynamics. The pilot of the series is about, you know, Duncan has his learner's permit but he never drives and his father doesn't understand. Like when I was, you know, 15, I was marking down the days on the calendar mm. and driving his freedom. And for Duncan, it's, you know, in a couple of years, I'll have an Uber account, self-driving cars are coming. <laughs> Anything I want to buy, I can just click it and a drone brings it to me. Because what we found out is in talking to people who have teenagers now, both things are still true. There are still those kids who cannot wait to get the license because they want that freedom and independence. But there's a whole section of teenagers who literally don't care whether they ever drive or not because they don't see the need. So we tried to have it both ways in the pilot. So we wanted all that to feel contemporary. We wanted kids to have cell phones, but also not be constantly looking at them because that makes for boring television. And I personally have a theory that I don't think kids want to see that that's them. Like I don't, and adults too, we all do it. You know, we're always staring at the phones, but I don't think they want to believe that they want to laugh at it as a joke, but (laughs) they don't want to, if you're just watching people watch phones, like why? (laughs) That's the challenge of any TV right now, in my opinion, is to get the audience to look up from their phones and look at the TV. People are starting to listen to TV now. Which drives me insane because in my head, like you missed a great psyche, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But I see that all the time. I see my own kids looking at their phones while something's on the TV, but they claim they're watching the show or people tweeting about a show while they're watching it. Mm-hmm. I don't get it. <laughs> now, you mentioned earlier that on, on your last show, you used a group writing for some of the episodes. What do you feel are the pros and cons of group writing as opposed to sending people out to script individually? Group writing is not for everyone. There's some very, very good writers who just hate that process. I like it. And I think so. I think that the hard part of group writing for a writer can be if it's not your thing, it can make the job unpleasant for you. And we didn't know when we started it uh, that that's what we were going to do. It just, we just kind of like, well, we'll do it for the first couple episodes and then we'll start sending people out on drafts. And it was working so well and everybody was contributing, we just kind of kept going with it. So we didn't really have a a fair chance to give everybody like a warning, like this is how we're going to do the show. Are you comfortable with this? Everyone kind of got thrown into it. But, you know, that being said, they responded well and seemed to enjoy it, even though maybe they would rather have been off writing a draft. So it worked for us. We did 13 episodes that way. 
I think it's better for the show and I think it can make the showrunners' lives easier if you're, like I said, you're able to maintain control of the tone throughout the writing process instead of waiting till you get the script in. Because the worst thing in the world is to have to take somebody's draft and then do a big rewrite. It's demoralizing for the writer. It's discouraging. And it's it's made even worse now by the technology of having a giant monitor in the room where your hard work is up there for everyone to see. And I've been in this position where you're like telling the writer's assistant, okay, start highlighting at uh, the top of page three. And then you just keep going, keep going, keep going. And suddenly you're on like page nine. You're like, okay, delete. Uh, and, you know, my heart goes out to the writer. <laughs> there was a, when I was running The Simpsons, uh, one of the writers, John Frank, who's a great writer, really funny. Uh, he and his partner, Don Payne, had written their first script for the show. <laughs> and I had just changed my mind about what the opening set piece was going to be. And we went in and we sat down there and I did, and we, so I started highlighting right at page one and we like highlighted the first eight pages. <laughs> and then I said, okay, uh, delete that. And John Frank said, yeah, I was going to pitch that cut. <laughs> and it kind of put everybody at ease, you know, because everyone felt horrible. And it was a great attitude to have in the room, and which is a great tip for writers. You're writing your draft, you know, you're nervous and there's a lot of pressure and you bring it into the room and it becomes a whole different thing. And if you're going to fight all the way through the rewrite process and just try to hang on to your own stuff, people are going to stop pitching. And they're going to go, fine. You know, you love your stuff that much. <laughs> Enjoy. The rewrite, it's another chance for you to work on your script. But now it's with a group of people. And you can fight for all this stuff, everything you wrote, or you can keep pitching on your own script. And then you still have a shot at getting your own stuff into it. Don't just fight because you wrote it. Like Listen to why it's being changed. And it doesn't mean it's right that it's changed. Sometimes during the rewrites, yes, can a script be ruined in the rewrite? Absolutely. Can it just become a lateral change? Yep, that can happen too. Can scripts get better? Yes, they can. If you look around the room and you know there's a lot of talent in there and everyone is just trying to do a better version. You bring in a strong draft and you're a hero because a good draft can go through a rewrite in a couple of days and you suddenly you can add this extra week to the production schedule that you didn't have. But I've been in the room where there's been uncomfortable moments and people are just kind of every line. I've seen the staffs clam up and you don't want that happening. And you try to help them on their scripts, they'll try to help you on yours, and that's how a good room functions. But if you're like the person who just, well, I don't get why we're changing it, or I like my thing. Like, we know you like your thing. It's You, you put it in the script. <laughs> <laughs> so be open-minded, listen. And if you have a fair point of like, or you genuinely don't understand, there's a way to ask that's not defensive or argumentative, you know, or if you know, later on in the process, if the thing that it was changed to isn't working, there's an art to try to bring back something that you might've had. And maybe not just necessarily an individual joke. Jokes are interchangeable, but a story dynamic that maybe got lost, like a thread of the story might've fallen out during the rewrite and people aren't remembering why isn't this connecting now? And you remember because you lived with it the longest. That's a good chance for you to kind of maybe get something back in again. But it's a process and it can be brutal sometimes. Mm -hmm. 
So moving on to production and specifically the animation process, can you just briefly walk us through the various steps of the animation pipeline and how that's kind of different from producing a live action show? Yeah, first of all, I mean, a live action shows somebody you know, writes a draft, it goes through a rewrite, and then you're it's up on its feet. It's being filmed, you know, if it's a multicam, it's, you know, it's done Friday night usually, and, and you're on to the next one. And, you know, single cams, they're similar. Animation, on the other hand, we break the story and somebody will write a draft. It goes through the rewrite process and you table read it, do another rewrite, and then the actors will come in and record it. And then the audio is put together and sent to the animators as kind of an audio play. You don't see it for a while. You'll see some storyboards along the way, like some time will pass, like months, a couple months will go by and you'll see uh, what's called an animatic, which is a black and white version of the show, you know, kind of crudely animated, uh, but it's got the, you know, the audio track on there and maybe a few sound effects and temp music and stuff. And it gives you like a chance to look at it with fresh eyes and see what's working and what isn't. You'll do another rewrite there. If you're going to do a heavy rewrite, that's where it has to be done. It's tough on the animators. And another thing, you always have to remember how much work the animators did to get it to this point. And when, so if you throw out an entire act or something, that's a lot of drawings. <laughs> and then, so you do your rewrite. And then a couple months later, you'll see the color version. And at that point, you're kind of limited to how much you can change. You have to really pick your spots of what's important because you're running out of time and money. Like on Simpsons, I, I, I learned how to write a joke that fits the mouth movement that you already have. <laughs> 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 so, uh, you know, you'd be like, you know, you're trying to figure out, we need a new joke here, but we don't have the money for the retake. So it's got to fit. So like you kind of learn, like I remember having like <laughs> counting on my fingers under the table, I'd be trying to think of the joke and the number of syllables in the joke and how do I get it to fit? <laughs> you know, and sometimes if you look at them closely, you can see that it didn't quite fit the mouth movement if we just really love the joke. So that's, you know, part of the animation process. And then at that point, it goes into post-production. I mean, you're, you're editing your music spotting, sound effects spotting, you know, all that stuff to get it to air. The whole process from writing to air is usually about nine months. But it, you, know, you do get those chances to look at it with fresh eyes, which is nice. And uh, putting together the production, how far into the writing process do you select your heads of departments and what do you look for in each of them? You first usually check out a lot of like people you've worked with before because you know they can do the job and that you have that, you know, shorthand with them. If they don't happen to be available, then you start searching and the studio might give you some recommendations of people to meet with. And I've met some great people that way. Or you'll talk to other showrunners about somebody that they've worked with and you get recommendations like that too. That's the same for writers. Most showrunners will call other showrunners that you've worked for and just say, you know, I read their script. I liked it. I met them. They seem nice, but what are they really like? Because <laughs> you know, you're you, you talking to somebody who spent months in a room with them. And so that's why also you always want to try to leave on good terms, you know, with everyone. Because uh, it also may not be the showrunner they talk to. Maybe they have a friend who worked on that show. And so they'll talk to them. And I've had people say to me, it's like a code thing, because nobody wants to really like badmouth somebody. But I've heard this phrase from a couple different people over the years. They'll say, yeah, they're really, really funny, but life is short. 
and that's you know kind of code for <laughs> they're a, a handful i guess would be the, the word <laughs> so because you know, some people can eat up a lot of time in the room you know and not that it's not funny or stuff like that but the work has to get done and you also like some people are just pitching for the room to entertain the room and not getting things in the script so you want to make sure people are focused on you know what you want because there's a you, know, you hate to sound like a parent you know there's a time for fun mm. and a time <laughs> but that that is true of running a room because I like to go home at night. And you can ask anyone who's worked with me. <laughs> and on the animation side, how do you find like a director, production designer, and set that visual style and tone of the show? Uh, when you're doing an animated show, the hardest part of developing an animated show is the character designs. Like, unless you're, you know, like a Matt Groening or a Seth MacFarlane or Mike Judge, where you have a, an animation style. I can't draw, my wife can't draw, Amy can't draw. <laughs> so the three of us, we just met with different studios and told them as much as we could about the show. You know, My wife came up with a way of describing the character. Because sometimes when you go into pitching the animated show, it's great if you have designs. We didn't have them because we hadn't picked our studio yet. So my wife went online <laughs> and started finding pictures of teenage versions of celebrities and like for Duncan, she found a picture of a teenage Ed Sheeran. Uh, <laughs> for his friend Wolf, she found a teenage Dave Grohl. And we made that our presentation. In the show, Amy is like a parking enforcement officer. So she took a picture of Amy and put it on Chief Wiggum's body. <laughs> and it was stuff because, you know, we were kind of covering the fact that we didn't have our look yet, but it was kind of a funny, original way to do it. If you've sold the show or if you're meeting with studios in advance, yeah, the character design thing is so hard and it's a lot of trial and error. And you're just looking through what they call lookbooks of styles. We ultimately went with a, a, an animation studio called Bento Box, who does Bob's Burgers. And the owner of a studio uh, is a guy named Joel Kuahara, who I had worked with when I first started at The Simpsons in 93. He worked in the post-production department, so we knew each other. And one of his animators, they were sending over designs. People from various uh, places were sending us designs, and there's no names on them. And there was like a couple of that we picked out these like three. We kind of like this look a little bit. There's something about it that was jumping out. Turned out they had all been done by the same animator. Mm -hmm. And we thought, all right, this this guy's he's on to something here. Mm -hmm. And it was weird because we were all looking at them independently, like uh, through emails and stuff like that. And we all locked onto that. Sometimes you don't find your look right away, and you're still evolving it during the process too. What we noticed in his there was something about the eyes that we liked and Duncan's hair is kind of in this like permanent bedhead uh, mm -hmm. thing that you know Amy had shown us a picture of her son who has this kind of permanent like bedhead of red hair so we made that his thing and then we it, it caused us to think well what if everybody had something about their hair that was a little unique or different so we started coming up with the dad has a, a ponytail, uh, which also kind of told us something about the character that he's still kind of clinging to the last shreds of youth. You know? And uh, Annie, the mom's hair, is kind of frazzled. You know? And we did it with all the characters. His friend Wolf has kind of a Ramones <laughs> haircut. And then uh, an actor named Yasser Lester plays his friend Yangzi. And he's kind of you know stylish and uh, like kind of plugged in 
social media wise and stuff. So we gave him a look and it kind of helped inform the characters a little once we started playing with that kind of stuff. And it's a process, you know, when we were developing the show, we were trying to, well, what kind of friends should Duncan have? And, you know, we like the idea of Betsy Sidaro plays a good friend of his and she's the class clown. And we kind of thought of her as like a female Chris Farley. At one point we were talking, I think Amy had said something about, yeah, we don't have a kid who's like that Alan Yang over at Parks and Rec. <laughs> you know, Yang is just so like plugged into everything, and he knows Kanye, and he did he just say, and then uh, and he was always uh, he wrote a lot for Aziz, and so we, we yeah we need that kind of Alan Yang Aziz kind of guy, and so we had this character as a joke. I think my wife said, yeah, he's, uh, his name is Yangzi, and we th- we thought it was like a temp thing, and we just never changed. <laughs> So you're always, you know, looking for those little like hooks for the characters that'll make them easier to write in the beginning when you really don't know who they are. You don't know what their families are like, you know, that sort of thing. And then you have the luxury of changing it too, you know, along the way. Uh, The Gary Marshall uh, odd couple, they did two different origin stories during the series. Like it, there was always that narration in the beginning on November 11th, you know, Felix Unger was thrown out of his house. And then, uh, and said he returned to the home of his childhood friend, Oscar Madison. And then they did an episode where they met on jury duty. <laughs> and I remember reading something, Gary Marshall, but, said, but you said it was his childhood. <laughs> it was funny. <laughs> now, when it comes to casting the roles and the voices, what are you looking for in the performances and how do you decide the right fit for the right role? We listened to hundreds of auditions, uh, and a lot of them were very good. And sometimes, it's just like when you're casting an act for a role, sometimes you're just choosing because you're just looking for a contrast in the voices. And sometimes the actors, like we had in our head, like Amy was friendly with Betsy Sodaro, and she's, you got to hear her voice. And she's super funny. And as soon as we heard her, like, oh, we, we loved it. And I, you know, I had worked with uh, Yasser Lester on the Carmichael show. And I knew, like, the way he spoke and his rhythm. He's got a very funny way of talking. So we kind of had them in our heads. The character of, of Wolf, who's kind of like a very low-energy guy who, like, nothing throws him. We were hearing from a variety of people. Uh, an actor named Zach Cherry from New York sent in an audition that was very different than everyone else's. He really committed to the low energy, you know, deadpan, quiet, and it caught us all off guard. So that was a fun discovery. And Amy had takes on, you know, Annie that was going to be based a little on her mom and Duncan's voice she came up with. Ty Burrell was a late addition. We had listened to all kinds of people and we just thought he would, you know, his name popped up a couple times and thought, oh man, he's like so busy with Modern Family. And he wound up being, once they knew that Modern Family was getting near the end, he was looking for something else to do. And he's just such a funny, you know, guy and fun to work with. And it just fit right. He had a dad quality. There was a, there was one actor we were really leaning toward but he had a younger voice and it sounded younger than what Amy was doing for the mom. And like, they're just not quite hooking up, but they're both really funny, but there's something, he sounds a lot younger than her. And then Ty brought in this kind of dad quality to it. So yeah, you're just kind of, 
you know, it's a different type of casting process because it's all just listening. Well, speaking of that, once you get to the voice records, are you kind of there in the booth working with the actors to get different performances or takes? What's that process like for you? Yeah, you're in there, either myself or you know, Julie, we're in there uh, directing the actors, you know, helping them, uh, you know, because at that point, maybe they've only done the, like the eight minute presentation, which is normally the way animation is done. You don't do a full pilot. You do a, a presentation because you can animate it faster. So, you know, they were kind of searching and refining the voices, tweaking things, finding funny stuff. You kind of let them run a little with it and see what they come up with. And particularly if you got people like Amy and Ty, you don't want to direct them so rigidly that you're not giving them the chance to do what they do so well. They came up with a lot of great stuff on their own. We found out that Ty's willing to go super big, like we didn't know, and he's very willing to play wild emotional turns and stuff like that. So you just, you do a lot of takes in the beginning and you're kind of trying to hear it because a lot of times you're recording the actors individually. The early years of The Simpsons were done like a radio play where all the actors were in a semicircle and they're performing it in real time. So you get to hear them playing off each other. This is motion animated shows now are not done like that. And it's individual sessions. You're hoping that it goes well with what you got. And then if it doesn't, you bring them back in and they're always, the actors are great about willing to try different things. And so it's just a, a process. And even while you're animating, you are bringing them back of like, okay, now that we see it, we need to reread this louder or a little more emotional to give the animators more to work with, uh, with the face acting. Cause that's the thing that people don't think about a lot in animation is the face acting that the actors do. Cause you're counting on that to help sell what the actors have given you in the performance, whether it's emotional thing, it's the things that subliminally hopefully make you care about the characters and like them. So that's part, a big part of the process. And the animators work so hard uh, to try to nail it, but you know it goes through many hands, and it's also a collaborative, long mm -hmm. process. And you're giving notes like, could you put a line under their eye and make them look a little more tired? Or instead of being angry, what if they're distraught? You, know, like, you have those kind of conversations. And it's tough, too, because... You know, like I said, well, my wife and I can't draw, and then they have to sit there and listen to us <laughs> pontificate about animation. Well, on that note, as a writer and showrunner, how do you contribute to storyboards and animatics and shape them up? You're looking at it from two angles. One is you're looking at the animation, the timing, the way the jokes are shot, and the acting on the actors' faces. But you're also looking at it from a writing point of view, uh, as much as we would love to blame the animators when something doesn't work, sometimes you just got to take a look at the script and say, this is just a bad scene, or it's not getting us to the next point in the story where we need to get. So, uh, so you're kind of looking at it from both those angles, and you got to be willing to go back into your script and rewrite stuff. Hey, cause it, and then it involves bringing the actors back in and <laughs> doing it again. And sometimes the process gets so long, you do get to a point of like, you're looking at a retake of a show. And it's like, hasn't this been on yet? Uh, <laughs> like, like, particularly with The Simpsons, because the, the, there's so much overlap from season to season and you just forget about certain episodes. And then suddenly you're watching it and like, I thought we finished this and didn't the AV club hate it? <laughs> <laughs> In terms of the punch-up process, at what stage uh, is that happening? Are you you know doing the script and the animatics? Do you are you all punching it up as a room? 
Yeah, we do it uh, as a room. You know, sometimes we'll split into two rooms if one's working on a script that's coming up. And then, you know, maybe the other script just needs like a couple of scenes. Like, you know, you'll tell the other room, like you'll give them which jokes to, that you want alts for. But yeah, you're kind of always thinking about it. It was something also I learned from the Simpsons. You know, like your job doesn't stop when you leave. You should always be thinking about the show. Is there a way to make it better? Particularly if you know, like if you were at work that day and there was something that clearly wasn't working and then you finally went home, well, that problem is going to be sitting there the next morning and you can't just expect the showrunner to walk in with the answer every time. So in the back of your head somewhere, you're like, I know you want to spend time with your family <laughs> and be 100% focused on them, but be 90% focused and let 10% still be <laughs> still be punching up things or trying to fix the story point that doesn't seem to be working because that's how you make yourself valuable to the showrunner. And always be thinking of story ideas. Never, never stop thinking about story ideas. It's the thing you run out of the fastest. Uh, <laughs> you start the season with, wow, we already know what the first six stories are. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, no, we're out of stories. <laughs> In my head, there's nobody more valuable than someone who's a constant source of good stories. Because that's where the shows live and die. You know, great jokes are fun, but you got to have stories. So people that are always bringing in good story ideas are so valuable to a showrunner. It's not the flashy part of the job. It's not the part that's going to get you laughs in the room, but the showrunner will be so grateful to you. Mm. So yeah, always be thinking of stories. Anything you see or read or something that happens to you in your life, always be thinking, I don't care if it's a, a death in your family. Like. <laughs> Is there a funny version of this story that could happen? That's such a huge part of the job. Now, you've created and run many TV shows. What have you learned from each of them that has made you a better showrunner? I was on a show very early in my career. It was only my second job. I had done the, the show with Yakov What a Country. It only lasted one season. Uh, but I got to meet Don Knotts, which was cool. Uh, but any, the second show I did was a show called Out of This World about a little girl who's father is an alien, but he lives on the other planet, and she has weird powers to freeze time and stuff. But what happened was the showrunner left, kind of in the middle of the night type of thing. <laughs> like, there was two like non-writing producers who uh, owned the show, and then he ran it. He had a like, middle falling out with the people, and he's like, I'm out. And the next day, <laughs> I can probably tell this story now. It's been 30 years. The staff knew he wasn't coming in. The non-writing producers run the show didn't know but were suspicious and started asking the staff, uh, you know, like, he hasn't come in today. Any chance you would know where he is? <laughs> and finally, you know, his agent called and said that he's leaving the show. And I was a story editor. It was my first year as a story editor. And they just said, you're in charge, which I thought meant promotion and a raise. Uh, I was wrong. <laughs> it meant they realized I was cheap and would say yes, just to get the experience. So I became the showrunner of this show. I think they finally gave me a title of like supervising producer, but always kept my money at story editor level. <laughs> 
but I took it for the experience uh, of learning how to run a room, learning how to break a story. And at that point, even though I was the showrunner, you know, the day before I had just been part of the staff. So I've always kind of had that mentality of being part of the staff. And it, it kind of sticks with me now. Like when I'm at the table, I know, okay, I have to make a decision here eventually, or or my wife makes it. This part of me just always feels like part of the staff. And I try to keep in mind of what it's like to be sitting there trying to think of a good joke or wanting to fix the story. And if I believe that everyone there is genuinely trying to do it, that's how I feel. I don't want people nervous when I'm in the room. I want them relaxed because I think you get better pitches that way. So that's probably what I learned from that you know, experience and out of this world is that feeling of like, you're always part of the staff. And it spills over into how I feel about the Writers Guild. I've never feel like management. Like when you become a showrunner, there can be pressure from the studio for you to become management. And I just never am comfortable in that role. I'm just one of the writers. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so I tend to, I want to defend the writers, fight for writers and writers issues. And that's been part of also what I've just learned over the years. All right, before we go, we have a couple of final questions for you. All right. Uh, it's not Simpsons trivia, is it? <laughs> it's not no. Simpsons trivia. Oh, good. good. Uh, That's it, meltdown down the street. <laughs> uh, number one, what are you watching on TV right now? This sounds like a, I'm just kissing up to Amy, but I, we just finished watching Making It with Amy and Nick Offerman. Nice, nice. <laughs> we love the, the show. It just has a great spirit. And I, it's always fun to watch the two of them together. So we just binged that. And then let's see, Cheer on Netflix, which we really enjoyed a lot. Apple TV, we were just watching The Morning Show. I think we just finished that. And... It's funny, I haven't mentioned a comedy, have I? <laughs> oh, no, I've was uh, been watching, you know, I mean, obviously, I've, you know, watch The Simpsons, but I've been watching Bless the Hearts, which is done by uh, Emily Spivey, and uh, she's got a great cast over there. Oh, The Good Place. Uh, yeah, the Good yeah. Place just wrapped up. Uh, Did you cry? So, uh, you know, I'm always crying. I cry. <laughs> now, Mike writes great emotion, too. That, that's another thing I learned from over the years, particularly from people like Mike, is like not to be afraid to write emotional stuff. I, it doesn't come natural to me, writing-wise. Uh, sometimes I, the joke will win out, and then I realize, oh, that could have been a nice emotional moment, and I blew it uh, by going for the the joke. And Mike was very good about like having faith in people's love of the characters, and that they won't mind if you don't do a joke in this spot. So that's something I'm still like trying to remind myself as a showrunner. <laughs> do you have any final advice for TV writers? The advice for all writers, that stuff about the phone, <laughs> I don't have to repeat it. The same rules apply. Like As you go on in your career and you become an upper-level writer, you have to be just as focused because you know, people are also, first of all, looking up to you, like the younger writers, you know, they want to learn from you. And you're also being paid more money and you should be earning it. <laughs> you know, It's the same deal in terms of there's thousands of other people out there that would kill to have that position. So don't take it for granted. If you're an older writer, and I'm including myself uh, in that, I'm I'm 63 now, <laughs> try not to sound like the old writer in the room. 
you know, people know the individual, and I will occasionally joke about it. And I always tell the writers in Duncanville, you're catching me in my declining years. Try to stay sharp, stay on top of things, you know. And, you know, not that you have to try to use the current, you know, <laughs> slang because you just look like an idiot. But don't just sit there lamenting, you know, the whatever you consider to be the golden age of TV. First of all, nobody wants to hear it. <laughs> you want to believe what you're working on is good, too. And a lot of times it is. And don't fall asleep in the room. I've seen it happen many times. (laughs) Stuff like that. If you want to have a long career, stay focused, stay involved, keep working hard. Don't sit back and think you can coast on 30 years of credits because the the competition is fierce. You know, I would like to keep going, you know, another seven, eight years if I can. You know, Jim Brooks comes into the Simpsons table read and gives notes and is still very involved, which is incredible to me because I was watching his shows when I was in high school. (laughs) So yeah, just don't ever take the job for granted. Learn everything you can from it. Good show, bad show, doesn't matter. Uh, Work hard, be nice to everyone. Be nice to the PAs, the assistants, <laughs> and uh, the script court. Like everyone is working really hard on this thing, and the work continues after the writers leave and before you come in in the morning. There's a lot of people working very hard, and try to keep that in mind. And uh, last but not least, do you have any resources you can recommend to our listeners? Uh, books, websites, apps, podcasts, uh, anything you can think of. It's been a long time since I've like read books on writing. I mean, I'm sure there's some really good ones out there now. And I, I remember reading, it's probably out of print now, Grant Tinker's book about television, which I thought was an awesome read. Uh, <laughs> people like him don't exist anymore. And I know like, you know, Jim Brooks just thought the world of him and has told us stories about how he would protect his show creators and writers and his theory was hire good people and get out of their way. That stuff. I mean, I, you know, when I was trying to break in, I, you know, William Goldman's adventures in the screen trade still applies, <laughs> but I'm sure there's others, you know, I, I, I haven't done like, like the save the cat and things like that, but anything you can learn from, you know, expose yourself to it and anything you get to, if you get a chance to write something, This is something that's always true, too. There's always like X number of shows that everyone wants to work on. There's like six shows that everybody wants to work on. That was true in the 80s, and it's true now. It's not going to happen. If you're lucky enough to get staffed on any show, even if it's a show that would not have been your first choice, throw yourself into it. When I worked out of this world, it was a job. You know, I had a family. <laughs> I wound up making some great friends. I did learn an, an incredible amount from the show that I use to this day. So don't let your, I hate to say the word disappointment. If you're lucky enough to land a job as a writer on any show, you should not be disappointed. It may not be your dream show, but you just keep working at it and learn everything you can and enjoy the fact that you're working as a professional writer I was a janitor in a hospital. I was a driving instructor. I worked fast food. I, you know, did, you know, when I moved out here, I worked at a mall in Glendale putting names on coffee mugs. You know? <laughs> so 
you're never like there's a part of me that never like far from that that <laughs> things could change very easily so yeah enjoy it and well before we go don't forget that we are now on patreon so if you enjoyed this episode please consider supporting paper team via our patreon page at paperteam.co slash patreon that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n you'll get exclusive content opportunities and merch and we can keep producing a great show for you every week so thanks to our listeners for taking the time to tune in and thanks so much to mike for joining us Oh, it was a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Thanks for being here. And uh, you can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 172. As always, I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. Uh, where can our listeners find you on social media? Oh, the only I'm on Twitter. Uh, it's at Scully Mike. Where and when can they watch Duncanville? Uh, Duncanville will be on Sunday night starting February 16th at 8.30 after The Simpsons. Also on Hulu. If you have any, any uh, thoughts, uh, feedback, ideas for future episodes, you can always send them to ask at paperteam.co. And uh, what are we doing next week? Uh, next week will be our Paper Tease segment for March where we read your TV teasers and give you feedback on air. All right. We'll see you next week. All right. See you then.